I'll be so glad when, oh, when, when the sun go down. When the sun go down. I'll be so glad when, uh -huh. when the sun go down. When the sun go I'm Michael Klein, and this is Radio Free Earth. That beautiful sound was Ed Lewis and Prisoners singing a haunting work song recorded by folklorist Alan Lomax while they were working the fields on the notorious Parchment Farm. The song is titled I'd be so glad when the sun goes down. You'll hear more later as I close out my first essay in this new series titled White Skin, Dark Truth, Negroes for Sale. I hope that photo, copied from an infamous daguerreotype of the enslaved Papa Renti and those three words, Negroes for sale made you shudder, made your skin crawl, leaving you shaking your head in disgust as it does to me every time I see the image or hear those words. Sadly, that is our American legacy, yours and mine, white skin or not. We have inherited and are the product of an economy built on slavery, forced labor, requiring the perception that the black man was less than human, could be owned as property, human chattel, mere cargo on a slave ship sold at auction in ports throughout the colonies, and open slave markets in town. Our racism-justifying demand for free labor turned our emerging America into the largest slave market in history. We couldn't get enough. The slave traders smelled money and made 35,000 harrowing transatlantic voyages, delivering 12 million Africans in chains to feed our appetite. Maritime historians document that roughly another two million Africans bound for our slave markets were lost at sea, their bones and iron shackles littering the ocean floor. From 1619 through to 1865, those three words, Negroes for sale, were Main Street, commonplace, pervasive, and part of the American vernacular and the racist foundation of who we are as a people, where we come from as a nation, and a reality from which we have yet to recover. True, of course, for those of African descent, but in a strange and terrible way, true as well for those of us with white skin. We carry the sins of our fathers. Slavery, the engine of colonial America and the South for 157 years before Congress, our white-skinned ancestors, signed the Declaration of Independence. But independence for who? The otherwise revered 
Thomas Jefferson, who penned the Declaration of Independence and later served as President of these United States, himself owned 600 slaves. Sadly, he wasn't alone. George Washington, our first president, owned slaves even while president, and the list goes on. James Madison, James Monroe, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler, James Polk, Zachary Taylor, Andrew Johnson, Ulysses S. Grant, all the way, to my surprise, even Woodrow Wilson, slave-owning presidents all. Ten of the first twelve presidents owned slaves. The only exceptions were John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams. Thank goodness for the simple human decency of those two. But my heart aches with every word here, sickened, because the legacy of our inheritance goes on and on. Over the years of legal slavery, 1,700 members of our Congress owned slaves. That included 374 United States Senators and at least 1,477 representatives, our forefathers. It took 157 years for our nation's hallowed leaders to adopt that beautifully written Declaration of Independence where in words we are told, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All the while, in practice, they were slavers. Jefferson the worst of the lot. For them to have endorsed, then ignored, Thomas Jefferson's lofty words required deep down the belief that blacks were less than human and that the signs and placards, Negroes for sale, told a greater, more deeply felt racist truth. A truth that lasted another 89 years, or a total of 246 years, before the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 and ultimately the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery in 1865. 246 years of legal ownership of other human beings by our ancestors, and a four year civil war hitting the industrial North against the slave economy of the South, Americans against Americans, towns and families torn in two, 720,000 dead to finally make slavery illegal. But the story doesn't end there. It is now 2024, 405 years since those three words Negroes for sale were the acceptable, embraced nomenclature of the day. And while the signs and placards are gone, the slave markets and the auctions shut down, the dehumanizing racism that permitted it persists as surely 
as the modern-day denial of this, our true history persists, a history we don't want to talk about, much less acknowledge, while living and breathing the consequential stench of systemic racism. For some, it is an overt and conscious racism, acted on with hatred, open discrimination, and violence. For others, it is the lingering but still sickening, unconscious bias of a more educated class, a class that abhors the overt racism of that early confederacy of fools. But nonetheless, they live at a cautious emotional and physical distance from it. Herein, I will be polite to neither. I want to read a poem that screams this dark truth in a soft, patient, and more powerful way than I'm capable. It is a poem by Forrest Hammer, reflecting on a family trip when he was a child in 1963. Memories of his family heading cross-country almost exactly a hundred years after the abolition of slavery, a time in history when I was a young white boy, just starting high school, living a very different life of then unrecognized white skin privilege. Appropriately, the now Professor Hammer titled his poem, The Lesson. It was 1963 or 4, summer, and my father was driving our family from Fort Hood to North Carolina in our 56 Buick. We'd been hearing about Klan attacks, and we knew Mississippi to be more dangerous than usual. Dark lay hanging from the trees the way moss did, and when it moaned light against the windows that night, my father pulled off the road to sleep. Noises that usually woke me from rest, afraid of monsters, kept my father awake that night too, and I lay in the quiet, noticing him listen, learning that he might not be able always to protect us from everything and the creatures besides perhaps not even from the fury suddenly loud through my body about his trip from Texas to settle us home before he would go away to a place, no place in the world, he named Vietnam. A boy needs a father with him, I kept thinking, fixed against the noise from the dark. What a dark truth Forrest Hammer shares. 1963, almost exactly a hundred years after the abolition of slavery, yet his dad was unable to promise safety to his own family traveling in these United States of America. Yet he is on his way to Vietnam. And the beat goes on. Now, in the context of that preamble to this series, please let me share a word about that photo of Papa Renty. Renty Taylor, who came to be known as Papa Renty, was born in Africa's Congo Basin in 1775, captured and ultimately sold to Benjamin Franklin Taylor, 
and spent his life enslaved on the Edge Hill Cotton Plantation in South Carolina. He died just as the Emancipation Proclamation and the passage of the 13th Amendment were realized. The Civil War was over, and we were officially the United States of America. Beyond his tortured life of slavery, Papa Renty was the central subject of some of the first known slave photos, strange and horrific photos called daguerreotypes, an early photographic process employing an iodine-sensitized silvered plate and mercury vapor, taken by photographer Joseph T. Zeely, hired by and under the strict direction of Harvard professor and famed zoologist Louis Agassiz in March of 1850. Agassiz's theories were used to support the enslavement of Africans and promote white supremacy via his genetic theory of scientific racism and polygenism, the theory that different human races had biologically distinct and different origins. At odds with Charles Darwin, Harvard's Agassiz used polygenism to argue that black people were a part of a wholly different and inferior race and as such were appropriately owned as property by the superior white race. These photos were taken with great care by Agassiz and a whole team of academics he brought with him to Zeely's studio. Actually, the care one would expect of a zoologist duplicating the zoological practice of fixing a specimen to hold it in place for it to dry and harden, ready for display. Of course, those specimens were already dead, so Agassiz used steel bars to literally prop up and support Paparenti in a fixed position, legs straight, back and shoulders square, a stiff and upright human mannequin. Agassiz was shameless about this inhumane, zoological technique, and his own daguerreotypes reveal that apparatus holding the tired 75-year-old Papa Renty up straight and open to thorough examination like any good specimen. It was all a part of Agassiz's attempt to document black racial inferiority. The men being photographed totally naked, front back and side views, male genitals fully exposed. The females were photographed naked from the waist up, front and side views only, the focus seemingly on their exposed breasts. But just look at Paparenti's expression of stoic, knowing resignation. As slave, as human chattel, he had no choice in the matter and neither did his adult daughter, Deliah, who was also so cruelly photographed. The result of this insult, these otherwise pristine but coerced photos, took on a voyeuristic character, pornographic 
in the most abusive and obscene sense of that word. Harvard claims they were shown only once at a meeting of the Cambridge Scientific Club in 1850. This elite club held elaborate affairs throughout the year, attended by Harvard presidents, themselves slave owners, and was the very venue where Agassiz presented his pseudo-scientific criticism of Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. Then, supposedly, these 15 daguerreotypes, framed elegantly and ensconced in small, often described as palm-sized wooden cases lined with velvet denoting their importance, were simply tucked away in Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, lost and never shown again for the next 126 years, only to be magically rediscovered in 1976. I cannot suspend my disbelief. I say supposedly shown only that one time at the Cambridge Scientific Club because Harvard University was endowed by donors whose wealth was produced by slavery and slave trading. The very people who this Harvard zoologist's disgraceful undertaking were the intended audience. Agassiz was well known as the consummate self-promoter, so the notion that his daguerreotypes, in his view, his most convincing and certainly his most meticulously prepared evidence of racial inferiority were not shared widely with Harvest racist benefactors is, I think, rather preposterous. Isaac Royal Jr., the largest slave owner in 19th century Massachusetts, with more than 2,000 enslaved Africans working his plantations in the South and in the Caribbean, bequeathed the founding gift for the creation of the Harvard Law School that very year, in 1850. Was that an historical coincidence? Is it even possible that he and others of his ilk were not shown the photos proudly? Let's be clear. These photos were commissioned by Harvard's Agassiz to document, to serve and justify the enslavement of these genetically inferior specimens of this degenerate race, as Agassiz called them. Does anyone actually think that those racist slavers who endowed Harvard were not the first eager voyeurs lining up for special showings? Would Harvard hide this ultimate documentation and racist justification from their intended audience of plantation-owning benefactors? Even if the 15 originals were inexplicably lost to memory at Harvard's Peabody, daguerreotypes could be copied by re-daguerreotyping the original. Then copies were produced on paper, either via traditional lithography or engraving. Other portraits, based upon daguerreotypes, 
appeared in newspapers, popular periodicals, and in books at that time. Copies were most likely made well before Agassiz entrusted the originals to the Peabody. Trust, obviously misplaced, given that they supposedly lost track of them for 126 years. Agassiz, the self-promoter and political chameleon, sought respect as the great scientist of his time in the contradictory world of both racist, pro-slavery plantation owners and abolitionists, and for his biblical audience, as a creationist himself, he believed that God created everything. But his theory of polygenism would require that there was a white Adam and Eve, an African Adam and Eve, a Chinese Adam and Eve, and so on. And that would have been a hard sale, even for Agassiz. Agassiz was constantly in the news and carefully juggling his message depending on his audience. Quite easily, the original daguerreotypes could have remained tucked away at Harvard's Peabody, and images of them shared selectively with very different audiences. When in the company of his southern slave-owning audience, they would have loved those images. In the north, outside the Cambridge Scientific Club showing, there were many plantation owners, like Royal Jr., with plantations in the south and elsewhere. Racists and slave owners were in abundance in Ivy League circles. Still, even copied images might well have been considered too controversial for open public showing. As for the Swiss-born Agassiz, quite independent of his daguerreotypes, he was unambiguous about what he really believed and personally felt. He writes that he was repulsed when he first came to the States and encountered a Negro slave. In that seminal moment of repugnance that he felt toward these lesser beings, this Harvard zoologist gave birth to his sick theories. In Papa Renti, Daughter Delia, and all those who were photographed, I see human beings of great character and resilience. Herein I honor Papa Renti and his descendants who sued Harvard to take back those humiliating photos. Harvard lawyers, of course, won the case and the originals remain shamefully at Harvard to this day. No longer copyright protected, they are now widely published, not to promote their racist intent, but to repudiate it as I do here. And though racism lives on, I pray that most who see them now are viewing them with the same disgust I feel. Disgust with Agassiz, a zoologist for goodness sakes, and disgust with the racist Harvard that empowered his madness. Harvard, what a place. For over 265 years, Harvard presidents owned slaves, and all students who went to Harvard over those many years and many generations 
did so under the tapestry of black slaves tending to the grounds, the inferior black race trimming that ivy, giving new meaning to the Ivy League as the superior white students kept their minds on Sophocles. Horribly and predictably, to this day, Harvard's only real affirmative action programs are its legacy and donor programs that openly give preferential treatment to its endowing benefactors and the offspring of the white-skinned Harvard alumni who saw their special world simply as the way things should be, a truth that doesn't change because they hired their first black president, a female, and an action I laud. But that token move was 386 years in the making, and as I speak, the real truth is told through the simple fact that to this day, black students remain but a tiny minority of Harvard's student body. Harvard's donor and legacy programs ensure that this equation will change little, even with a bevy of black presidents, or with the revelations of Harvard's own findings by their Presidential Committee on Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery, published in 2022, and that $100 million pittance offered up to redress their racist history. To this day, Harvard, built on the blood money of slavery, equals white skin privilege at its worst. And no wonder, for over 265 years, Harvard was so graciously endowed by the cotton-rich slavers of the South, spring break likely taking students to those gone-with-the-winds plantations, romanticizing the antebellum South and its whitewashing of the horrors of slavery, all the while sipping their favorite peach brandy to the distant rhythmic sounds of slave work songs meaning to all the slaves were at work as they should be, and all was well. Higher learning didn't change this equation. The Civil War and the rise of the Industrial North did. But even then, look at the next hundred years, right up to this day. Racism reigns. If I can point to Harvard Ivy, where generation after generation carried forward this social normalization of racism, both conscious racism and unconscious racial bias. Just imagine what deep roots it has throughout the South and with the wealthy descendants of the plantation life itself. For both and for most all of America, it goes on. White skin rules, and we are the lesser for it. We are robbed of the dark truth of our own history and of our direct ancestral complicity and responsibility. And we're robbed of the rich beauty of African cultural diversity. That is the enduring legacy of this era of unimaginable inhumanity. And to this day, it eats away at 
our collective humanity. I'm Michael Klein. Slavery and the legacy of racism are not easy subjects to study and share, and I'm sure they're not easy subjects to hear, spoken out loud in anger and with shame. The denial so deep, so much that we just plain refuse to hear, but we must. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you join me for my next essay in this continuing series where I'm anything but through with Harvard and Agassiz. I even bring Frederick Douglass and the New York Times into the conversation. Then I'll take you deep into the world of slave songs with the help of Alan Lomax. For now, I'm signing off from Radio Free Earth with a tribute to Papa Renty and all his family. You will one day tear those daguerreotypes away from the clutches of racist Harvard. And I offer grateful thanks to Forrest Hammer, Alan Lomax, and the Alan Lomax Archive. Now, to Ed Lewis and fellow prisoners for their Parchment Farm rendition of I Be So Glad When the Sun Goes Down. Free at last. Take it away, Ed. I'll be so glad when the uh, sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I'll be so glad when the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. I ain't all that sleepy, but uh-huh. I don't want to lie down. Just don't want to lie down. I ain't all that sleepy, but uh-huh. I Oh, my.